0: Message titled this morning, Present Future, Present Future. That's what I want us to think about this morning, knowing Jesus Christ in the present and moving into the future that God desires for us. I read about a gentleman who was taking a tour through Europe. He was a big history buff, and so he's hitting all the major points of European history as well as, you know, hitting some of the touristy destinations. In the mountains, he came to this small village, and he saw an elderly gentleman there. And so this guy approached him and said, excuse me, sir. He said, do you know if any famous men were born in this village? The elderly gentleman paused for a moment and then looked at him and said, nope, only babies. Some of you, that's gonna gonna get hit on you later. You see, babies represent, we realize potential in a child, in a baby, to grow into and to be the person that God designed and created that child to be. And I know and I believe that our past is important. You probably have heard the phrase that those who fail to learn from the mistakes of the past are doomed, what? To repeat them, you know, going into uh, our future. Uh, Where we are today uh, is largely in part to our past, be it good past or bad past. We are today the people, uh, the sum total of things and situations that have happened in our past. And so I don't want to discount in any way the significance of the past in a person's life. But there is one significant limitation of the past that we must be aware of. And here's the, the danger uh, in focusing on the past. Some people get so fixated on the past uh, and long to return there that they can't function in, in the present. They're, they're living and desiring that, uh, that, that they're not living in the moment of now. While others, their uh, situation is that they are afraid of the past and what's happened and don't want to repeat those patterns. Or they deal with, with guilt and shame and they struggle with what's happened in the past uh, to the point that they can't experience and go forward today because of this, this noise, this dissonance in their mind. That's why the past shouldn't be a driving factor in our lives. Because you know what the limitation of the past is, don't you? You cannot influence, you can't change, you can't alter the past in any way, shape, or form, no matter how desperately you may want to. On the 21st of every single month, I long to return to a day in my past. Many years ago, I committed us to a financial decision that I wish I could undo. And if I could return to that point, I would tell Shelley: pinch me, kick me, bite me, pull my hair, do whatever you have to do to keep me from signing those papers. Because for over a decade now, the 21st rolls around and I go, oh, what was I thinking? I'd love to go back and change that part of our past, but I can't. Even if we long to go back to a point in the past or, or, or recreate an environment and situations, oh, it was so good then, I, I, oh, it was wonderful, I wish I could do that over again. We can't. We can't go back to that point. And even though we fear the past and what's happened or we carry some of that forward, we can't change that what's in the past is in the past. It happened. It happened, it's done, it's over. We cannot change anything that has been done. But what we can do is change what we do and what needs to be done in the present to lead us into a desired future, into God's desired future for us. You know, if you desire to go back to a point in the past, you can do things in the present that might help bring about what it is that you remember and you treasure and you value from the past. We hear about morality and and when culture was different and all these sort of things. Well, what we do now is we teach and we model these things in our life and for our children and for our grandchildren to bring back those things. Now we're not living in the past, but we're bringing those things forward and applying them now to be a part of our future for us and our family and even for our culture uh, as a whole. And, in, and thinking about the past and some of the lessons we've learned, good lessons, bad lessons, sometimes those are motivators for us. You know, it's very common to find people who are very passionate about social issues and, and involved in things whose past, a very difficult past, drives and motivates them now in the present to do things so that others don't have to experience and go through some of the things that they experienced in their past. Mothers of drunk drivers would be an example of that. Someone who started that because of the pain to say, let's get out and be proactive in this so no one else has to experience the tragedy and the pain and the trauma that we went through. So our past can motivate us in our present to lead us into a desired future. So think about this. A baby was born in Bethlehem and he was a special child. He was unique. But you know what? He was still just a baby that Mary and Joseph held in their arms and they had to nurture and provide love and care to for this child. What they were doing was living in the obedience of the moment. God came and said, you're going to have this baby. He's going to be given to you. And so they obeyed and followed God's will, God's word to that point. They loved and they cared for that child. And they and that child grew to move into God's preferred and desired future that he had planned for them by being obedient in the present and moving into his future. So I want us to see two things from this text this morning about, God, about our present and the future that God desires for us. This formerly blind man uh, went to his second interrogation for the Pharisees, uh, he continued to share the truth of his story, that they were upset of him still claiming and defending uh, Christ and speaking of him having done the miracle, so they excommunicate him from the synagogue. He's cut off from his faith, from his family, from his friends. He became an outcast, what this meant was that people were to avoid this man and shun him, to totally ignore him walking down the street. He was ostracized. And if someone didn't shun him, if they were seen speaking or interacting with him in some way, they could be persecuted because of the interaction. They could be disciplined. They could possibly be excommunicated just as the man had been excommunicated. That was his punishment, his penalty. That's what it means to, to be excommunicated, uh, to be cut off. Off, to become an outcast from his people. So they put him out of the synagogue and in verse 35 we read what happens. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him. Having found him. I want us to drill down just a little bit on this and the first thing I want you to see this morning and I want to settle in your heart and I want you to wrestle with this as you leave this place today is that Jesus finds the outcast. Jesus Finds the outcast. This is the second time now that Jesus found this man. The first time he found him, he restored his physical sight. And remember that Jesus went to find the man. He wasn't like walking around the streets and he bumped into Jesus and Jesus goes, oh, you're blind. Well, why don't I heal you today? No, Jesus went and found him and gave him his physical sight. Now, the second time Jesus comes to him and he gives him something even greater than his physical sight, he gives him the gift of spiritual sight to recognize and believe in Jesus as his Savior. Jesus finds the outcast. Do you realize, do you understand that this characteristic, this trait is one of the hallmarks of Jesus' ministry? Jesus over and over repeatedly comes to the outcast, to the marginalized, to the fringe people of culture and society to share the good news of the gospel. I mean, we see it begin even in his birth. Was Jesus, as a baby, was he someone special? Absolutely. I mean, he was God in the flesh. But what about Mary? What was special about Mary? Was she royalty? No. Was she wise beyond her years? Not not that we understand. Was she sinless? No. Was she super spiritual? You know, some would have you believe some of these things, but the Bible teaches us that God in his sovereignty chose Mary, an average, normal girl from an unknown village, to be the one that would carry and give birth to Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God in the flesh was was born through Mary because God chose her. God found and chose her to be the one who would carry this very special and give birth to this very special child. Well, think about Joseph. Joseph isn't mentioned a lot after Jesus' birth. You ever notice that? After Jesus is born, you flip through and go, where'd Joseph go? Well, many scholars think that he may have died early uh, in Jesus' life. We don't know that for sure, but there's just not much mention of Joseph, Joseph after Jesus' birth. Well, what was special, unique, uh, outstanding about Joseph. He was a carpenter. Uh, we, we know he, he seemed to be, have a good heart, a very kind heart, as he wanted to divorce Mary quietly when he found out that she was, that she was pregnant uh, with child. Uh, but that's about all that we know. But very quiet. We don't know a whole lot about Joseph, just a normal carpenter who, who uh, was, was married and betrothed to uh, Mary. When God was born as a human, when he made his entrance into the world, who were the first people to know? Shepherds. Now, were they wealthy, influential, powerful people in their day and time? No, they weren't. In, in some ways, they were outcasts. They were fringe people. Uh, they lived away from the city and away, away from uh, popula- uh, a population base because they were always moving the herds and caring for them out in the fields. When they came into the city, they smelled because they were hanging out with, you know, with the animals. And so people kind of kept their distance uh, from the shepherds you know, a little bit. So they were a, a little bit outcast, somewhat ostracized from society by virtue of their position. They weren't the lowest rung necessarily on the social ladder, but they weren't too many rungs above it, all right? But but shepherds are the first to hear and see the good news that God himself had come into the world. And then as Jesus' ministry started and as Jesus moved through the years of his ministry, what kind of criticism and, and accusations were leveled against him? Over and over again, we hear from, particularly from the religious people, that Jesus hung out with sinners, with the prostitutes and the sinners and all these people. I said he eats and he, and he hangs out with the drunkards and the tax collectors. And they're like, it's just awful. The people he runs around with. Jesus touched and healed lepers and all kinds of people with sicknesses and illnesses and diseases. Most of society wanted nothing to do with those people. They were afraid they would catch what they had. And when those people walked down the streets, they had to call out, unclean, unclean, and the crowds would part. Nobody wanted to touch these lepers and these people with these diseases. But Jesus went and he touched them and he healed them. The touch of Jesus to some of these people may have been the first human touch that they had experienced in years. Years where they cut off from society and Jesus comes and touches and heals them. Here's the point. When it comes to sharing the gospel, believers are commanded, commanded by both the example and the teachings of Jesus himself to share the good news with outcasts. We are commanded by Jesus' example and by his teaching to take and share the gospel, the good news, with the outcast in our world and our society. The Jews cast this formerly blind man out and made him an outcast because he stood up for Jesus. But Jesus never casts out those who come to him. In John 6, 37, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And I love what Chris Austin says about this situation. He says, the Jews cast him out of the temple, the place where they came to worship God and, you know, to surrender to him. The Jews cast him out of the temple to cut him off. But he says, you know what? The Lord of the temple found him. Man, I love that phrase. The Lord of the temple found him. Remember that in salvation, Jesus Christ finds us. We are outcasts. We are separated from God because of our sin and our disobedience to him and his word. And I want to speak on this a little bit more uh, at our joint service on January 1st, our, our, our Vision Sunday. I remember it's a single service at 1030 that day. But just to, to kind of share a little, uh, a little trailer for that, God has been... Increasing my holy discontent. And I've spoken about that holy discontent, that unsettledness within us that God is stirring. It's been increasing my holy discontent with the church. Not just our, but the church universal's apathy, our indifference, and our laziness when it comes to reaching and ministering to the outcasts of the world. Ever since I read the book Radical, I've been wrecked. I have been wrecked. I have this constant tension and wrangling within me, this this frustration and disgust with myself, with myself over my grasping and my chasing after the things of this world while I ignore the plights of millions of men and women and children around the world. Who who who, who had no crime, no no wrongdoing in their own, were simply born in a different nation, in a different place from which I was born. And I'll sit and, and I, I sometimes eat it. You know, we'll eat a $15 and a $20 steak and I, and I realize that, that people are dying because that $15 or $20 didn't get to a place to give them food or water or provide a mosquito net to protect them from mosquitoes carrying deadly illnesses. And, and not too long ago, I was reading an article about the sex trade industry and the plight of young girls, children, who suffer horrific, ungodly terrors because of sinful, selfish men and women who give full freedom to the lusts and the desires of their flesh. I mean, you realize that our nation is in the driver's seat of this worldwide, don't you? Because there's no restraint, no aversion in our minds to to the perversion of our sin and our, our ungodliness. And I read these accounts, and I was physically ill reading about some of the atrocities and the horrible things these girls, these children, these boys endure. You know, hearing, hearing Tracy share of her story, say, That's in America, that's here that these things take place. Say, like, What are we doing? What am I doing to help the plight of the situation of these individuals? And a couple of days ago, I came across this picture. I don't know if any of you have seen this picture floating around Facebook and different places on the internet, this, this defy necessity picture. And this caught me just a few days after I myself had risked life and limb to get out on Black Friday to pick up a few things. And you know, I looked at that picture and was like, yeah, I'm, I'm in one of those two pictures. You guess which one is more than I'm, than I'm in. And It's a huge wake-up for call. and so I'm, I'm wrangling with all these things in my heart and my spirit. There's this constant noise that's there. And then God brings me to this passage in John 9, and I read how Jesus pursued the outcast, and he ministered, and, and he shared uh, incredible love with them. And God whispered to my heart, "Curtis, how are you pursuing? How are you ministering to the outcast?" How are you leading Mount Pleasant to pursue those who are outcasts in our world and our society? And I was grieved in my heart at my failure in this area. Never forget that Jesus found you. He didn't just stumble to where you were in your sin and your disobedience to God. You know, we will accidentally find things sometimes. You ever put on a pair of pants or a pair of shorts you hadn't worn for a while and you go, sweet, 10 bucks. And we're like, all right, I found money in my pocket. I didn't know it was there. That's awesome. We get all excited about finding money in our pocket. Well, Jesus didn't just stumble across us and go, oh, hey, look, you're lost in need of a Savior. Well, here I am. He intentionally, through the power of the Holy Spirit, seeks us out and speaks to our heart and draws us to himself, opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel. You know, people sometimes say, well, I found God. And, and I don't want to, you know, critical of people's journey and, and phrasing. I understand the concept that's there. But, I mean, recognize God's not been lost, okay? We're the ones who are lost, and we wander and we stray. God finds us, and he opens our eyes. Maybe not physically. We have sight here, but spiritually to see our need for a Savior and to receive him as our Savior. And that's what happened with the formerly blind man. Jesus finds him a second time. And he offers and gives to him something greater than his spiritual sight. He says at the end of verse 35, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, I think this is one of the most beautiful words in this entire chapter. Jesus said, you have seen him. You have seen him. The greatest thing that happened in this man's life up to this point is being given the gift of physical sight. And many people celebrated what had taken place, but it had just caused him to be cast out, to be cut off from his people, to begin living a life of loneliness and isolation. And I wonder if he's sitting there going, how can this happen? What just happened? I received sight. Now I'm an outcast. No one wants to be around me. They're going to shun me. How can these two things fit together? And then Jesus appears and looks at him and says, you have seen him. He got to use this new gift of sight to see the face of his healer and soon to be savior. Because Jesus says to him in verse, the next part, it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Here's an interesting thing the word for sir in verse 36 is the same word translated Lord in verse 38. You see, the word Lord was used to give uh, deference or show respect to someone in in position of power and authority. So in verse 36, he says, who is he, sir, that I, that I might know him? And, you know, you, you've heard, you know, seen movies or read books where a servant in a household, their, their master would say, go do whatever. And they say, yes, my Lord, you know, and they, they do. that. It's a, it's a term of acknowledgement. And so it was respect he showed Jesus in verse 36, but it's a sign of submission, Of his will in verse 38. Because when Jesus said. It is he who is speaking to you. The man believed. And instantly he was saved at that moment. At that point of belief. He was saved. And he said Lord. I, before he spoke the words, his heart had been changed. He had been made right with God. You see, I think sometimes we get this thing about salvation to say, God's moving and God's speaking in my heart. So if I come and I, I walk down the altar and then I meet the pastor and I, and I pray the prayer, then I'm saved. No, God gives you the faith. When you believe in your seat, you recognize your need for a savior. You are saved at that moment, at that point, by believing in Christ. And so this man called him sir in verse 36 and then refers to him as Lord in verse 38. Now his will is surrendered and submitted. He doesn't see Jesus just as his savior. Now he recognizes him as his master, one who can tell him what to do and to have authority over his life into this man's future. And we have seen this man's faith progress all through this chapter. Early in the chapter, they asked who healed him, and he said, The man called Jesus. The Pharisees interrogated interrogated him and asked who it was, and he said, He's a prophet. Then he he recognizes Jesus as Savior when he believes in him, and then finally he surrenders his life and calls him Lord, and he worshiped him. And the word for worship uh, is the same word for uh, bowing down, for kneeling before someone, a sign of surrender, his will, his life to Jesus. And the fact that Jesus received this man's worship indicates that he was God in the flesh. You see, Peter, uh, Paul, and Barnabas preached the gospel. God gave them uh, the authority to perform signs and wonders so that people would believe in them, would believe the gospel. And as they performed these signs and wonders, each of them had encounters where men tried to bow down and worship Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. And they said, no, no, stop. We are just mere men. Do not worship us. We are but servants. But Jesus received this man's worship, indicating that he was God. And I said I wanted you to see two things in the text this morning. The first is that Jesus finds the outcast. The second is that our worship of Christ in the present defines and directs our future. Our worship of Christ in the present defines and directs our future. The formerly blind man believed in Christ in the present and would go into his future with him. Some hear the gospel, reject the gospel message, and they move into a future apart from Christ. And that's what happens to the Pharisees here. In verse 39, Jesus says to the man after he worshiped him, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, and probably with a condescending, scoffing sort of voice, are we also blind? And they were expecting Jesus to say, well, no, you can see, can't you? Duh, you're not blind. But Jesus doesn't say that to them. He says in verse 41, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What that means in short is this. If you admit to your blindness, which is your sin, that sin has blinded you uh, from God and his word and led you into a life of disobedience. If you acknowledge your blindness, your sin, you can be forgiven of those sins by believing that Jesus died for you. You're forgiven of those sins, the the punishment. You are no longer guilty of those. You are saved and forgiven of those sins. You can see spiritually spiritually. But if you say to yourself, well, I'm good enough to work my way into heaven or my sins aren't that bad, you know, like some of these people... If you refuse to admit your need for a Savior, then you are guilty of those sins. You remain in your blindness. And here Jesus says he came for judgment. And some people say, well, earlier in in John, Jesus said that he didn't come to judge the world. Well, it's two sides of the same coin. Jesus didn't come for judgment. He came to share the good news and present himself as the way of salvation. But if people reject that way of salvation, then they face judgment. Jesus said, I came to relieve you, to free you from that. But if you don't receive it, then judgment awaits. So yes, judgment is by default the state that we're going to be in. But I want to encourage you today. And I've said before that only, the only people who don't acknowledge light are those who are blind. And if we refuse to to receive, believe in Christ and receive him, then we remain spiritually blind and guilty and dead in our trespasses and our sins against God. But I encourage you today, if you've never given your life to Christ, and believe and receive him as your Savior and make him the Lord of your life so you can experience the newness of life like this formerly blind man did. I said this before, your past does not define you. Your past does not define you. I don't care who you are, what you've done, where you've been, what's been done to you. Jesus Christ is able and wants to make you a new creation right here, right now. He's provided a way for you to be forgiven of your sin, cleansed from that past to become a child of God here today in this moment. All you have to do is follow the example of the formerly blind man. Believe that Jesus came and provided this way of salvation and receive him into your life and then surrender yourself to him. Believer who's here this morning, I've been praying all week and I don't know if this has happened or not, but I've been praying that God would convict us deeply of a couple of things. One, I pray that God would convict us if we are too focused on the past, either negatively or positively. Sometimes we get so fixated on the past that we fail to walk with Christ today and experience the fullness of a growing personal relationship with him, which prevents God from working in our life now and into the future that he has for us. So maybe you need to come today and spend some time at the altar on your knees before God uh, in an act of surrender to say, God, I give myself to you. I want to live in the moment with you. And God, I want to walk with you into the future that you desire for me. that we can meet God today. We can surrender ourselves and we can rise up and we can leave this place to go and do what God leads and directs us to do. And I've been praying that that will mean bold, decisive, intentional steps and actions toward reaching people and sharing the gospel, particularly with the outcast in our world and our society and our culture around us. I think all too often we see people in need and we make judgments. Well, they probably did this and they did that. If I give them money, they're gonna go do, go do this with it and they're gonna go do that with it. And so we use that as an excuse to not follow the example of Jesus Christ and give to those who are in need and to serve them. Well, you know what? If you've got those issues, you've got those questions, get to know the person. Don't just give a handout, give yourself, give your time, get in relation, find out what their situation is and then don't just give, help them move from where they are into the future that Jesus Christ has in store for them. How about that for some action? Don't just throw money at it, give yourself to it. That's what Jesus calls you to, to be his hands, to be his feet to those who are in need. Not pass judgment from a distance and say, ah, I know what's going on over there. You don't know what's going on over there. And Jesus calls you to find out, to get involved and to be his hands and his feet to people that are hurting. I pray that God will give this body a holy discontent with our apathy, with our indifference and our laziness and living out the gospel among the outcast and those who are in need in the world today. So I'm going to pray that you will pray with me and ask God to give this church a burden and a clear vision as to how we can follow Jesus' example of finding those in our society and in our world who are outcasts so we can be the hands and feet of Jesus to those people. Today, how do you need to respond to Christ in the present to experience his future in your life?